You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 tonight to have my brother here this evening and uh, his son, Grant. And uh, who's this with you, Travis? Zachariah. Good to, all right, good to have you tonight as well, brother. And I heard my family was here last Sunday night when I was out of town. So there may be some issues I'm not aware of. They only will come when I'm not here. But uh, good to have my brother. Uh, he's back in the States now. So if you pray for uh, him as he's serving with Vision Baptist Missions. And uh, this is kind of fun just seeing each other more than couple times a year, and they're grateful for that. Sometimes not even a couple times a year. Galatians chapter 3 this evening, if you will, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And before we get to that, um, just a word of update. Pray for Brother Joe. He is recovering from surgery. And uh, I think um, Miss Lisa, let me look at uh, his, her text here real quick. She said, uh, surgery went well. They placed a rod into the bone. Uh, he will be going to rehab department tomorrow. Um, and she said after 4 p.m., uh, you could, if you wanted to visit or call him or something, so I'll probably plan to stop by tomorrow evening. But if you pray for Brother Joe as he's uh, now rehabbing, and uh, seems like that they structurally got things squared away they needed to, but pray for Brother Joe, one of our senior men, and uh, things that he's navigating health-wise. He fell last night late, broke his hip, and so keep praying, if you will, for him. All right, Galatians chapter 3. Let's begin in verse 1, and we're looking at plus nothing, a study on the gospel uh, and the grace of God in Galatians, and making sure we add nothing or subtract nothing from it. Oh, foolish Galatians, Galatians 3.1, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be not, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham." In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Verse 11, a key verse, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. That, notice verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So we've been looking at different aspects of the grace of God and what that means for us and how to make sure we stay faithful to the grace of God. And want to look at this aspect tonight, grace argued. How do we argue for the grace of God uh, in a way that we see Paul modeling for us? So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for these dear folks, their faithfulness this evening. I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Thank you for what you did this morning in our midst and all the new folks that you've brought our way that were integrating and connecting with, and many of them interested in joining with us here. Give us wisdom as we seek to encourage them and include them and guide them. And thank you for these faithful ones tonight, that you would use your word in our lives, Lord, not to just be soft and accommodating with your grace, but to be willing to stand up and argue for it, as we see Paul so graciously and yet firmly doing in this text. And Lord, I pray we'd be willing, when needed, to put out and to put forth the arguments of your grace that will cause us to stay faithful and to call others into that same grace. Bless this study, be honored in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So looking at tonight, grace argued. Um, I don't know if anybody in the room is a Costco or Sam's Club person, but one of the things that those like, uh, 
you know, places you go into and uh, you can buy, you know, a lifetime supply of whatever in one flat. It's on a pallet. You just drive in with your forklift and take it home with you. Okay, that's, I guess, what it is. But the other day I saw this picture. This is a true story um, when you walk into, I think, I can't, I don't know if it says which it is, if it, but it's one of those, oh, Ikea food. So this is an Ikea one. But do you notice a little thing in the right corner? Not actual size. You got to be kidding me. Do we live in a day where we have to say that? Yes, we are. We're in a litigious society where people are constantly, well, that's not what it looked like when I bought one or when you gave me one or whatever the case may be. Not actual size. Can I tell you as it relates to our arguments that oftentimes we are petty and we are divisive and we are distracted from the real core of the faith and what God has called us to be faithful to. And so far too often are arguing about the finer points of grace versus the law that we're going to talk about briefly this evening. This chapter, we could spend months just in these verses that we just have read this evening, but we tend to get caught up in the finer points or in the granular parts of the grace versus law debate where we need to be less technical and we need to be more relational. Um, And so our view of grace and our arguments for grace and against abuses of grace needs to be fueled by a desire to have greater relationship with God and call others into that same relationship. Because if we're not careful, our arguments become very tit-for-tat, just kind of waging war and battle, and we lose sight of what uh, God intended with um, His grace. And so here in chapter 3, we're kind of pivoting now from Paul talking about personal testimony of his own ministry and relationship with the grace of God, and he is now arguing for uh, what the proper relationship between the law and grace and between grace and our God should be. Um, And so in chapter 3 and 4, we see him leveling these arguments. In fact, he uses frequently the following words. In in chapter 3 and 4, he uses the word faith 14 times. He uses the word law 19 times. He uses the word promise 11 times. And in these two chapters, he puts out six different arguments um, that are very strategic and well-articulated and very succinct that I think we can glean from. And so we're going to talk about a couple of those that he puts out here this evening as it relates to arguing for the grace of God. So the question tonight is this, in a day of making everything about God's grace academic or analytical, how do we return to arguing for it in a way that reflects the personal and the relational realities of the grace of God? All right, so let's talk about tonight two relational preserving arguments that Paul levels against the Galatians at times we may need to do so also. Number one, let's talk about arguing for the grace of God from past experience. I love this part of our study tonight. Arguing for the grace of God from past experiences. Um, We just had some meetings today. We had luncheon with about 25 new people to our church. Our starting point luncheon had a great time with them uh, right after church this morning. And we were talking about different ministries, and I was talking for a minute about our children's ministry. Um, and I heard this the other day. This is so good. Someone said this, the best children's ministry program is kids watching their parents follow Jesus. So experience trumps everything. And here's, here's my encouragement to you this evening. Our arguments for the grace of God need to come not out of academic knowledge or head knowledge. They need to come out of the overflow of our own experience with it. And so Paul here doesn't call them to some theological debate. Paul could have mowed them down with his understanding of the law and theology and waxed eloquent, but instead he hones in on what they had experienced with the grace of God and where what they were contemplating or considering that was false ran contrary to their experience. And so Paul begins here with the Galatians' own personal experience with Christ. Um, that experience of which gave them evidence of how God works and how his grace is intended to be fleshed out. All right, so let's talk about this, not just with the Galatians, but with us. Number one, jot this down there, your outlines in our bulletin. Remember the gifts of experienced grace. So one of the ways that we defend the grace of God, as we talked last time, a couple weeks ago, and we argue for the grace of God, is by remembering the gifts of experienced grace. Nothing that we've experienced with God is ours without the grace of God, right? I don't have any moments with God. I don't know anything about God. Everything that I've experienced with God is a gift that comes as a result of God's 
grace. So let's talk about quickly a few things Paul reminds them of that they've experienced that have been given to them through grace. Go back to verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, all right? So Paul doesn't beat around the bush here. He calls them out, calls them fools. Who, have, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Number one, first of all, the gift of revelation. So what we know about God, God has given to us by his grace. And so we don't want to abandon his grace, a grace that has offered to us everything that God has revealed to us. Um, and so Paul here is calling them out and he asks this question, who hath bewitched you? And it's interesting, the fact that the who is in the singular seems to indicate that Paul thinks what is drawing them away from the grace of God may be the devil himself. It's in a singular. It's not the who's. It's not in a plural form. It's not the false teachers, ultimately, that are drawing them away. Uh, it is the devil uh, himself. The end of verse 1, you notice he says, Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Who had done that? Paul had. He had been clear, crystal clear. He had preached Jesus Christ crucified uh, to this crowd that was now tempted to go back to the law. And so he, he says, basically, to go back to the law is to turn your back on the cross of Jesus Christ. You're disregarding what God revealed to you, his love and his truth through the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've noticed this in your own life, but the temptation for all of us is as the years go by, the more that we know about God through his word, we start relying upon ourselves. And my experiences are not steeped ultimately or built ultimately in the grace of God. It's, I, you know, I, I walk with Jesus and I know God and he knows me. And we begin to rely upon our knowledge instead of remembering that everything we know is only because God has revealed it to us. And so the revealed truth of God must regularly grip us and keep us practically in right relationship with the grace of God. I hope tonight, and I know, I know I'm preaching in the choir, as we say on a Sunday night, but I hope you can't get over the fact that God's given you His grace. And if you just go back to where you were right before His grace just flooded your heart and soul and life and home and changed you, turned you upside down. Some of us, we were three-year-olds or five-year-olds or seven-year-olds. We weren't in a gutter somewhere with our life in shambles. But God did something in that moment. That's what protects us from wandering into false teaching as it relates to the grace of God. And so remember what God has revealed to you. Um, and so we need that, a reminder of the gift of the revelation of grace. I right, go on to verse 2. This only would I learn of you. So Paul's now beginning to ask some rhetorical questions and use those to probe the heart of this group, these believers and these churches in Galatia. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the word by the works of the law or by the hearing of of faith. Number two, the gift of spirit, the gift of God's revelation. Number two, the gift of God's spirit. And so one question that Paul feels is sufficient to settle the matter is, go back Galatians to your conversion. Did you receive the spirit because you obeyed the law or because you trusted in Jesus Christ? We have the Holy Spirit within. We talked about that briefly this morning for those of you who are here. We have that not because of something we do or don't do, but because of someone that we trusted in, right? The one that in John 14, as we studied this morning, said, I'll not leave you. I will send a comforter. I'll not abandon you. You will not be orphaned when I go to be with the Father. And so the gift of the Spirit is ours, not through keeping the law, but through faith, faith in God, faith in the grace that he freely offers. All right, verse 3, he asks a second question. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And so Paul says here, if they could not obtain salvation by works, could they expect then to grow in holiness or Christian maturity through the law? And if the power of the Spirit was necessary to save them, is not that same Spirit necessary to grow them or to mature them? Um. One of the struggles we have the further we get into our walk with the Lord is, yeah, we know salvation is by grace through faith alone, but then our day-to-day -day walk with the Lord is such a grind because it's in the flesh. It, we're just trying to fight and claw our way towards sanctification instead of just like we gave it all to God in salvation and surrendered to His Spirit. We're not doing that in our sanctification. We are saved, we are sanctified, and we are secured all by God's Spirit. 
He's the earnest. He's the deposit as it relates to our security. He's the one that sanctifies us, less like the world, more like Jesus Christ. It's not a bunch of rules. It's not a bunch of legislation that's passed down, not just for us, but those that we influence. And so the gift of the Spirit comes through faith and through dependence upon the grace of God. And so Paul here says that the way the Spirit entered your life should be the same way the Spirit advances your life. The way you're going to grow is the same way you were born. Again, uh, it is this Spirit, and it is by grace alone. And so the way for us to progress as a Christian is to continually repent and uproot these systems of trying to do it our own way and in our own strength, and to remind ourselves and to go back to the foot of the cross and remember what God did for us in that place only by His grace. Um, are you familiar with the expression, an Indian giver? Do you know what I mean by that? Hey, you're such an Indian giver. We're, that's a compliment, right? You're just an amazing Indian giver. No, it's like, a, it's like slamming somebody, all right? You gave something, and then you take it back. Um, you know, for some of us, we're not an Indian giver as it relates to grace. We're an Indian taker. Think about how dumb this is. So we take from God, or we receive from God His grace, and then we think we've arrived or we no longer need it, we're going to do the rest of it on our own. And maybe we're going to pass it on to others around us. And we have been recipients of God's grace that floods our life and our soul and our heart. And, and then we just kind of push away from that and try to do this in our own strength. And Paul's like, you've got to be kidding me. Galatians, why would you do that? And may we also be convicted where we are an Indian taker. We take the gift and then we kind of push it back toward God and our pride and self-sufficiency instead of depending upon Him. Whatever God gives in His grace cannot be duplicated, let alone improved upon. You might want to write that down. Whatever God gives us cannot be duplicated, so you're not going to give Him back His grace and come up with something just as great, and you're definitely not going to improve on it. So why would we give back to Him the best thing He's offered, His grace, to try to do in our own strength, what only he can enable us to do. And so Paul here says, remember the gifts of experienced grace. For some of us tonight who've become a bit too legalistic, and we've defined that a few times, and we'll come back to it again in, in subsequent chapters, it would do well for you just to go back to the moment you got saved. And remember how it all had to be God. You just had to re rely on him and let go of everything and everyone and just say, God, I need you. I got nothing. And often our legalism is steeped in pride and self-sufficiency. And Paul here wisely calls them back through argument, graciously so, to the gifts of experienced grace. All right, number two. Look at verse four. He asks a third question. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? Number two, remember the results of experienced grace. So we need to remember what God has given us through his grace and what that looked like at salvation and the subsequent moments after that. Number two, we need to remember the results of experienced grace. Somebody was joking about, you know, how uh, the land of Canaan, when the Israelites were going to go, it was called the land of what? Flowing with what? Milk and honey. And the dad joke from that was this. This doesn't sound quite as inspiring. It's the land of, uh, instead of being the land flowing with milk and honey, it's the land of cows and bees. Like, that's not quite as inspiring, right? It's the land of cows and bees. Let's go there, kids. Let's, let's find out God's promises. Isn't it funny how just we repackage things God has given us as his people, and, and we, we, we lose the luster, we lose the, the shine, if you will, of all that God has promised to us that is ours only because of God's grace. Do you know how much in your life tonight would not be there if it weren't for the grace of God? And you've gotten so used to it, and so have I that we don't even connect that dot anymore? Do you know how much in our lives this evening is only ours because of the grace of God? The results of grace that we think just everybody has, and it's just kind of the normal MO of a human existence. So much what of, is what in our lives is the result of experienced grace. All right, and notice two things he talks about. The first one's kind of counterintuitive. The first result, notice in verse 4 as we read, <clears throat> he says this, Have you suffered so many things in vain. The first result of experienced grace is the result of sufferings. And in verse 4, Paul reminds them that when they came to Christ, when they received Christ as the Galatians, that they suffered greatly 
um, for the cause of Christ. You could go back to Acts 14 on your own time and read on it different things that they faced, and Paul warned them that they would suffer. Uh, He was on his first missionary journey, and he came to Galatia and had several converts and warned them that they would be persecuted for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it seems evident through church history that they were persecuted shortly after their conversion. And Paul talks about that here and reminds him that if they had turned from grace to the law, then they would rebrand or repackage their previous position that brought on the persecution. Like sometimes we've suffered. You remember when you first got saved, the ridicule and the mocking you got from others in your life, uh, maybe even from Christians so-called. And if we go back to the law, that, that negates all of that trial and all that suffering we've been through. And Paul says, listen, it was not in vain. If you go back to the law, it makes vain what was otherwise significant. Um, I, I joke about this with Heidi at times. Uh, you notice how as we age, we mellow? Like things, man, that we used to just like hold the line on, especially if it's between our kids and our grandkids, you know, a um, bunch of softies out there, Okay. And I can, I can feel that, where it's just like, why was that such a big deal? And I'm not saying maybe we shouldn't mellow in some of those areas, but if you notice how we get soft with age spiritually as well, you know the only way to keep ourselves firm and fixed where we need to is we need to continue to be willing to endure pain for certain things. We need to even be willing to die for certain things. Is the grace of God matter enough for you to suffer for it? Days gone by, for many of us, it was. We took a stand when someone misrepresented the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as the years go by, it just, it wears us down. And Paul says, listen, at one point you were willing to suffer for this. Don't abandon a previous uh, position. And so only an accurate and motivating view of grace can protect us from this softening, this mellowing, where we need to stand firm. Uh, Verse 5, he therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. All right, there's a second result that he alludes to here, the result of miracles. So Paul says, first of all, when you got saved, Galatians, you experienced persecution. Number two, you experienced miracles. Supernatural things occurred in your life and in your church and in your community. Don't forget that as you process whether you're going to go with grace or the law. And so Christ, or Paul here says that God had bestowed His Spirit abundantly upon this assembly, and the gift of the Spirit manifested itself in works among them, things that affirmed their faith and their confidence in God. Um, spiritual power was manifested, not through fleshly efforts, but through the power of God. And so Paul says this, if you notice it, he says, Did, were those miracles done? I think he's likely referencing himself here. He that ministereth to you the Spirit, possibly someone after him who ministered as well, doeth he it, this minister, by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. And so the Galatians knew of these miracles, knew where God had made his power evident. And the question here raised has only one true answer. Who produces, between grace and the law, between the Spirit and the flesh, who produces the supernatural intervention of God in human time and space? I'm telling you, it's not the law. There's no legal clause that has healed a person or saved a person or changed a family. There's no rule or regulation. It's faith in God and faith in a God who manifests His Spirit uh, amongst us. And so the Spirit can only miraculously work. So why then would we trust in our own works? That's the contrast here. You can trust in what you can do or are you going to give room for God to work by trusting in His grace instead of your own performance and your own rules and regulations or those imposed upon you by others. And so the Spirit here works as a Christian doesn't rely upon their own works, but rather continuously rest in what Christ alone can do uh, in our lives. It's interesting how Paul here links the Spirit and the gospel in this inseparable way. The works of the Spirit uh, are the result of the gospel, our trust and our faith in it. Uh, J.I. Packer said this, I think this is a great way of saying it, we never move on from the gospel we move on in the gospel. Um, if I ask you, what's the gospel? And then if I say to you, how's it relevant to you tonight? 
If your answer is anything, if your answer is only that I can tell the lost about it, and your only focus upon the gospel is the salvation part, you're missing a lot of the fully orbed manifestation of God's grace. His grace is for more than just saving you. It's not just a fire escape. It's to change you. It's to grow you. And so we never move on from the gospel, but we do move on in or through the gospel. Do not abandon that which, was, that which has produced the results in your life. All right, so this last word, and then we'll move to our second point. Paul asked these questions. There are six of them if you add them up in verses 1 through 5 all to cause personal reflection about what God's grace had already done in the lives of the Galatians. I would encourage you to ask yourself those six questions. Go back through verses 1 to 5 and write down an answer to those questions and let that remind you of how precious and how significant the grace of God has been and therefore how significant it would be. We do not get where we are at with God tonight without the grace of God. Stop looking at lesser things. Stop look, looking at lesser mechanisms than the grace of God. All right, go to verse 6 now. Let's talk for a minute about a second aspect of argument that Paul does masterfully here. In verse 6, he now pivots to this man Abraham. Look at verse 6. He says this, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. All right, number 2. Argue from scriptural example. So when you're trying to defend and argue for the grace of God, I think it's good to share personal experience and testimony, but that's not enough. We need the authority of God's word behind what we're saying. And so Paul here masterfully now pivots from his own personal experience and that of the Galatians now to the authority of God's word. Um, I don't think I brought this up in this setting, but um, I don't know if leftovers is a thing in your house. You know, maybe Sunday nights is that for you. Um, I'll get the vibe now and then from Heidi, you know, on Sunday night, especially because she teaches in full days. It's basically you're on your own guys. Okay. Uh, I know some of you eat popcorn on Sunday nights after church. I'm a Trav and his buddy here. We're going to probably have dinner afterwards. It'll be a little better than that. You know, maybe, I don't know, we'll gnaw on something together. Um, but, uh, you know, cereal or whatever you're on your own. Maybe it's leftovers. All right. Whatever's accumulated for the week. But somebody was talking about the idea of that they don't really like leftovers, but they still put them in the fridge. And here was kind of the sequence. They said, we don't throw away perfectly good food in this house. We put the leftover in Tupperware, put the Tupperware in the fridge, let it go bad, and then throw it away. Okay, that's, that's how they handle their leftover. Any of you, does that relate? You just feel bad keeping it, but eh, it's been three days, four days, two weeks. I guess we won't eat that now. Um, do you know sometimes that's our view of the Old Testament? It's almost like, well, we live under the age of grace. You know what's fascinating is that Paul goes back to the Old Testament to shine light into our view of the grace of God. That is amazing to me. Um, and so may we not view the Old Testament as just leftovers that when we warm up don't, aren't so appealing. There's a lot of rich truth in them uh, to help us argue for uh, the grace of God. And so Paul here asks us to consider Abraham, which kind of is a hard pivot, isn't it? So we read verse 5, and it's like, whoa, why is he now going back to Abraham? And you're going to see in a moment why he does so uh, in a very wise way, obviously on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he speaks to the, about the father of the Jews. Obviously, he's dealing with Judaism and legalism from a Jewish perspective, and so he appeals to the experience of Abraham. Um, he reveals, reviews, uh, or refers back to Israel's ancestor, one they revered and held in high regard. Uh, and so he calls upon basically Abraham as a character witness about his position and his argument about grace versus the law. Any good lawyer, by the way, always refers to previous precedent. And so what Paul does here masterfully is he uses established precedent that has inspired Scripture. That's a key thing for all of our arguments. Like, go back to when God spoke about it. Use that as your benchmark. I, don't, I could care less what some YouTuber today or some you know, guy who's just smashing it on social media with his view of God. That is temporal. That's a, that's a, that's a, a vapor that will s shortly pass away. And then you have God's word forever settled in heaven. And not just in, in principle, but in real stories. Um, one thing that I've been convicted by lately, I don't know if this helps you or not, 
in my counseling or in, in my conversations, I often have like go-to scriptures that I just kind of quote almost like a zombie. Well, you know, the Bible says this. And one thing I've been challenged lately in some study I'm doing is using narrative portions of scripture that illustrate that principle. Like in your parenting or in your influence, don't just give the verse that's more a didactic teaching verse. Find a story that fleshes it out. Um, and I love that Paul does that here with Abraham, where he takes a narrative component and applies it in a very principled way uh, in this situation. So he goes to divinely established precedent versus these contemporary teachers that were trying to mislead uh, the Galatians. And so his second proof, uh, he uses not just their past experience, but he uses the Word of God. What does the Old Testament say? Um, one last comment on that, and then we'll move into the, these last few verses Um, I was reading a book we taught on Christian conscience a few weeks ago on Sunday nights, a little mini-series, three weeks from Romans uh, 14, 13, and 14. And in a little book that I was reading, the author said this. This is so good. He said, the text, speaking of the Bible, this is so good. The text means what the text is author means. So that's my question to us tonight. I don't, listen, you shouldn't care what I think about the grace of God. I shouldn't care what you mean about the grace of God. God came up with the concept. And so the text means what the text as author means. Um, And so I love that Paul does that here so masterfully. And a lot of times in our arguments, we just, well, here's what I mean by that. It's semantics at that point. We've got to get back to the original intent of each of these theological components of our faith and of the gospel. All right, so let's talk about a couple things as it relates to that. Number one, remember the blessings of exemplified grace. So he's going to use the scriptural example of Abraham, and he first reminds them and calls them to remember the blessings that come through Abraham as he exemplifies a right relationship with grace. All right, go to verse 6. And I'm going to give you, I don't think this is in your outline, but Paul now is going to quote from several Old Testament passages. I'm just going to give you the references. We don't have time to look at them, but he, the rest of the text we're going to look at is really just a summary of several Old Testament portions that Paul quotes, a man who was well uh, versed in uh, the Old Testament. So go to verse 6. Even as Abraham believed God, it was counted him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So maybe put beside this first point, blessing of faith. So the first blessing was the blessing of faith. Paul quotes from Genesis 15, 6. And I would encourage you on your own time, go back and read these Old Testament texts. Blessing of faith. So because Abraham rightly related to the grace of God, he was given the ability to trust God, to have faith and confidence in God. So in verse 6, he talks about this faith that Abraham had. Now, here's my question to you tonight. How was Abraham saved? What was he saved by? Was he saved by the law? The law wasn't there yet. We had the law and the conscience and some of that, but the law wasn't even in existence. How was Abraham saved? He was saved by what? By faith. We studied Hebrews 11, the whole chapter, just a few months ago. And so God, as he submitted to the grace of God uh, in his life and what God was going to do, what he had promised... God blessed him and saved him because of his faith. There was no merit. There were no rules. There was nothing he did or didn't do. He simply trusted in God. And so it gives no place for fleshly effort, the faith that we see modeled by Abraham. All right, notice the end of verse 6. He says, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Um, And so we see here that Christ, who died for us as our substitute, he died for sinners. And because he died for us, we are justified. This does not mean that God makes the believer righteous and sinless in himself. He reckons us righteous based upon the work of Jesus Christ. Do you know when we get saved, we are a sinner at that moment, right? We didn't do anything to earn that salvation. In that moment, we are saved because there in that moment, we are a sinner. We didn't do anything. We didn't stop doing anything. Uh, And so he's reminding us tonight that the blessing of faith uh, and that blessing that follows of salvation is by grace through faith alone. All right, verse 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Now we have a pivot here. 
The Jewish teachers were maintaining that in order to be the, quote, real sons of Abraham. Okay, can you imagine them saying that? I can hear that vibe in the previous verses. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to jump through all of the hoops of Judaism, the observance of, for example, the dietary rules that Peter got intimidated by back in chapter 2. And yet Paul says here, he refutes it head on, the real sons of Abraham are not those who are born Jews, but, or those who become Jewish converts, they are those who are saved by faith, any and everybody. Um, and so we see an inclusive message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that any and everyone can be saved, again, by faith, through the grace of God. And so Paul here shows that Abraham was reckoned righteous before he was circumcised. Read the text. He was not when God declared him righteous. He had yet to observe that be taught that, have that revealed to him. And so we see Abraham, by faith alone, being delivered. This obviously flies in the face of all traditional religion, which tells us that we either are living righteously and therefore pleasing and acceptable to God, or we are living unrighteously and therefore distanced from God. There's a third option, and that option is, though we are sinners, we still have relationship with God through the grace of God. And so that is the truth, that is the gospel as revealed in his word. When a person receives credited righteousness, he or she is still wicked in that moment when they receive it. The justified status is not given to them because they have gotten their hearts in a certain level of submission and worship. We don't clean up our lives in order to earn credited righteousness. Rather, we receive it while we are yet a sinner. And so if that is true when we got saved, then that's how we go forward after we're saved. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. We simply receive it by faith. That's the blessing of faith. All right, verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing, now he's going to quote again, that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee, in thee shall all nations be blessed. Number two, blessing of consistency. God is consistent all the way from the beginning until today, not just the Galatians day, but our day. God is uh, consistent. In verse 8, we see him quoting from Genesis 12, 3. So he quotes from Genesis 15, 6 and verse 6. He now, in verse 8, quotes from Genesis 12 and verse 3. And we see that, that Paul sees in this text in Genesis 12, 3 a greater uh, significance to the statement. Notice again at the end of verse 8, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Isn't it amazing to see the Holy Spirit to Paul adding commentary on a text in Genesis chapter 12 that I never would have made? Paul probably didn't even see the link until the Spirit connected those two dots. You have the Holy Spirit commentating on the Word of God. And so this consistency between Genesis 12, now we are several, several thousand years removed. We're in Galatians chapter 3, and God is still working in the same way. It's still by faith, through grace, that we are saved. I've said this before, but one of the things I love about God more than anything else is the same, person, the same way a person got saved a thousand years ago is the same way they get saved tonight. I love that God's consistent. In the moment we abandon the grace of God, all the rules go out the window, all the guidelines. So to abandon the grace of God for whatever you feel like should be the rules tonight, or I should, that strips us of that steadiness and the consistency of God's grace that's freely and, and broadly offered to the world, no matter where we go and who we witness to. And so this consistency that is ours only by the grace of God. And what I love about it, in fact, go to verse 9, he says, so then they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. And I love that, that Paul uses the Jewish scriptures to confront the Judaizers. And he uses Abraham, the man they revere the most, to confront where they have abandoned the grace of God for something much less. Those who attempt to lead us away from by grace through faith alone are those who claim to belong to an elite club. They create hurdles and hoops for the rest of us to jump over or through. You and I, who know the grace of God, need to see through that approach and believe and trust that God has always required only faith, and therefore we can have personal relationship with Him. It's all about power, isn't it? Let's be honest. Those who are leading us away from the grace of God, they're leading us toward their own influence and their own consolidation of power. But if it's, if it's free to all, um, they lose that power. And so may we see through that and those in our day uh, communicating the same message. All right, let's end tonight, verses 10 to 14. Notice the second area that Paul wants us to remember as we look at the Old Testament. 
and the examples found in it of the grace of God. Verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. All right, so number one, remember the blessings of exemplified grace. Number two, remember the cursings. Here's the opposite side of the coin, the cursings of exemplified grace. One of the hard things about the grace of God is not only does it offer to us what God freely gives us, but it also, it condemns anything else we trust in. And actually, if, I know this, is, this kind of sounds like two opposite things, but the grace of God actually curses that. It condemns that. Um, and that's often where the rub is with the grace of God. Those who chafe under it, they don't like how it confronts them, how it discounts what they're trusting and believing in. Um, I don't know if you saw this or not, but uh, iRobot, which is like, um, has like different uh, home technology things. Their biggest thing would be those little disc cleaners, you know, that move around for all you lazy bums out there, you know, and gives the cat something to mess with during the day. Um, we don't have a cat, but some of you do. We pray for you regularly, you cat people. Um, but it, it just moves around. And Amazon, last I heard, just acquired that company. And, and I'm not a huge conspiracy guy, but it's interesting that iRobot, that, that the, the sweepers, they map out your home, right? Just think, I'm not trying to scare you with Big Brother stuff tonight, but just think, okay? And the, the premise is this, that Amazon is not after that niche of a market. They want to know the layout of your home and all that that means for their technology businesses and their marketing because there's a footprint of your home now digitally that they have access to. Does that scare you a little bit? I don't have either issue, okay? So I don't, I sweep, no, I don't sweep my own floors. But, um, but they're after the data. Do you know tonight that there are people that are using the grace of God and trying to twist it for their own agenda? And sometimes we buy, we swallow hook, line, sinker. Hey, here's a new version of grace that's more appealing. And here's a new way to live. And and, and we buy, we swallow the lie that's appealing to our flesh, either in a legalistic way, hey, we can all look so great and compare ourselves, or there's no rules, I can do whatever I want, license. And we abandon the grace of God without considering the, the, the consequences of that, the agenda of the one pushing it and the consequences that will have. Listen to me, not just on us, but on our kids and grandkids who are misled by our faulty view of the grace of God. And so Paul sobers his audience by saying, here's where this is going to go. You follow this long enough, this will lead you to a place of cursing instead of blessing. And I would give you just two of them in the time we have left. Number one, cursing of inadequacy. Cursing of inadequacy. Uh, In verses 10 to 12, Paul is quoting, you could write down these three Old Testament verses. He kind of blends them together. First, Deuteronomy 27, 26. So he references that early uh, in verse 10. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, so these would be where he's building this past voice of Scripture. So Deuteronomy 27, 26, Habakkuk 2, 4, and then the last one, Leviticus 18, verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 5, Leviticus 18 and verse number 5. And so he quotes these verses to remind us that through the law and without grace, we are inadequate to please God, to have relationship with God. Uh, and the curse that comes with that through these texts that he shares. All right, let's quickly break those down. In verse 10, notice that he refers to from the Word of God that instead of conferring a blessing or giving a uh, a blessing, the law can only bring curses. The verse does not say as many as have broken the law. Notice it says instead as many as are of the works of the law. That means using the law, trying to use the law, depending upon the law, to bring blessing from God. And notice that the response of that is they are what? They are cursed. They are condemned. They are not justified. Cursed is everyone who does not. Notice that. I love how he words that. Continueth not. So it's not just we do it for a day. We have to keep doing it. Keep doing it. And there's no way in our flesh that we can do everything that God has commanded us. Obedience must be complete. James reminds us to fail in one point of the law is to fail all of it. And so obviously we cannot keep all of the, even the Ten Commandments consistently. There is only inadequacy. Um, I think it's in another place. I don't think it's in Galatians. I have to think of it for a second. But here's our mic dying. Here it goes. The, um, 
The law is weak. Why? Because it depends upon our flesh, right? And our flesh fails. It falls short. And so we're inadequate through the law. All right, verse 11. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. So here Paul in verse 11 quotes from the prophet Habakkuk to show that God has always justified men by faith and not by the law. In other words, those who have been reckoned righteous by faith, not by work, shall have eternal life, and those who try to work their way into God's favor miss out on it completely. We cannot attain it without um, being justified by faith. Isn't that an interesting verse that's quoted also in Romans 1.17, Hebrews 10.38? Over and over, the just shall live by faith. And so God here reiterates it in verse 11. All right, verse 12. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. So the law does not ask us to believe. It doesn't require us to have faith. It doesn't even require us to keep its commandments or try to keep its commandments. All it does is, is it calls for strict, complete, perfect obedience. And so because of that, we always fall short of the law. The law kills, grace makes alive. May we be willing to trust it when we're tempted to go in a legalistic manner. So the law was never intended to save us or sanctify us, was it? Was it ever intended for that? So we take something God gave us and we impose upon it our own expectations and agenda. It was, it was a schoolmaster. We're going to get to that. It was meant to condemn us, to bring us to the end of ourselves, and then to get so desperate that we just turn to the grace of God. The law is a means. It's not the end. And so may we be careful not to miss that in our relationship with it. All right, let's end verse 13 and 14. I know this is, uh, we're going a little deep tonight in theology and our reference, our understanding of God's grace, but this is important. Notice the end of verse, uh, or the beginning of verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. They just mentioned earlier, being made a curse for us. I love this verse. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Lastly, number two, cursing of death. So remember the cursings of rejecting the grace of God first in that we feel and know that we're inadequate. Number two, that ultimately death is the end of our relationship with the law. Christ did not redeem men from the curse of the law by keeping the Ten Commandments perfectly. Yes, he was perfect, but that's not how he justified us, was it? He hung on a tree. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is the grace of God. It wasn't that he was a a legal scholar and he kept the law perfectly, though he did. That's not what led to our redemption. It was the fact he took our death. He took the consequences of us falling short of the law of God and gave to us the grace of God. And so may we trust in it instead of trusting in ourselves. Verse 14. Let's land here tonight. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. I love this. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So God here promised uh, to bless Abraham and to bless the world through him. The blessing of Abraham is realized through salvation by grace through faith. The penalty of death is required by God. It's paid by Jesus Christ. He is cursed for us, and now we as Gentiles can be descendants of Abraham. We can be recipients of the grace of God. And I love that he says in verse 14, might come on the Gentiles. Don't have to become Jews to experience the grace of God. You can be a Gentile and receive the promises all by faith. This question tonight, where are we relying upon our self-efforts in salvation or in sanctification? Where are we bringing upon ourselves unnecessary cursings from God who instead longs to bless us? What self-sufficiency do you have that you need to lose? And let's look at one last verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Would you go there for a moment? Appreciate your kind attention tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and let's look, if you will, at verse 5. And this is, I think, where we need to land as it relates to the grace of God and arguing for it and arguing against false representations of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 5. This idea of trusting in God, trusting in grace instead of trusting in ourselves. 2 Corinthians 3, look at verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, 
but our sufficiency is of God. Then notice verse 6, who also hath made us able, ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Just a question tonight. Why is it that as we testify of Jesus Christ, that others around us, it's almost like, like we're killing them or we're hurting them or we're attacking them. Why isn't there more life? What, why is it that us in this room who know the grace of God and should at least be regularly testifying of it, why aren't we seeing people come alive? They're dead. Why are we not seeing people respond? Could it be less about the grace of God and their even condition in relation to it? And it's how we're representing it. Are we arguing for the grace of God from our own personal experience with it? Just share what God's done in your life. Share what the grace of God has produced and generated in you. And secondly, use the word. Argue from scriptural reference. Argue from scriptural principles to defend and to testify of the grace of God that he has offered to us. I begin with a picture of a sandwich. I will end with one, all right? This is, I don't know, I have a way of thinking that's weird, I know. But uh, this is a picture of a, uh, saw this little antidote, somebody shared it with me, of a couple, Clifford and the lady who wrote this little article took this picture. She said, Clifford and I have been married for almost 41 years, and I've made his lunch every working day since day one. On occasion, I will join him on the job site and have lunch with him. He made the comment once that lunch tasted better when you share it with someone you love. All right, gag, okay, but it's good, okay? Good job, buddy. Um, Soon after that, while fixing his sandwich one night, I took a bite out of it before putting it away. When he got home long before cell phones, he commented that someone took a bite out of his sandwich. I told him that since I couldn't join him for lunch, I took a bite so he knew I was joining him. I continue to do this frequently, and he says, quote, saw you join me for lunch today, and it sure was good. Um, Isn't that just a neat little antidote? I remember my grandparents, my grandpa was big on having apples in his his, uh, in his uh, lunchbox, and Grandma was always packing him stuff before he headed out to the farm. Do you know that the grace of God, it puts us at the table with God. It puts us into relationship with Him. And we're arguing about the finer points of this isn't the actual size of something, or we get caught up in technicalities. The grace of God gives us access to personal relationship with God. And our arguments need to come from that motivation. And secondly, it, avail, it, off, it opens up seats at the table for others around us. Our defense of the gospel must be relational in its tone. You know, want to know why I'm even preaching this tonight, besides it's the next chapter and verse in our series? Because if I don't argue for the grace of God, I can't have full access, and neither can others, to the grace of God. It's that important. And so our arguments need to be relational in nature, where we tend to get a bit technical and a bit defensive or even offensive uh, in how we uh, interact with others. And so defend and argue for the grace of God through this relational prism. You don't need to try to catch God in a technicality. You don't need to defend against others who are just argumentative. Uh, keep it personal. Keep it between you and God in a way that pleases and honors Him. All right, end with this statement. Salvation means much more than forgiveness. One author said, we don't simply have our slate wiped clean. We also become perfect in God's sight. We stay perfect in God's sight. We don't begin by trusting in Christ's curse, becoming a blessing, giving death for us, and then continue by human effort as though we must now earn his ongoing blessing. As Paul says here in the text, that's foolish. We go on as we began, having our hearts melted and molded by knowing and trusting Christ crucified. We must never move on from the gospel. We never can, and we never need to. Stick with the gospel. Stick with the grace, and allow it to accomplish in others what it's accomplished in you. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word tonight.